It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Hey, everybody. It's Reed. Before we get started, just want to remind everybody that we've got less than 100 days until Election Day in November. Now we need your help more than ever. Go to lincolnproject.us and sign up for our updates. Go to jointheunion.us and sign up to be part of our grassroots army and share this podcast and all of our content with your friends and your family. We are at the tip of the spear, gang, in protecting democracy. We can do this, but we can't do it without your help. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Michael Teeter, the Managing Director of The 65 Project, a bipartisan organization whose mission is to protect our nation's democracy through the holding accountable of lawyers who raise fraudulent court claims with the goal of overturning legitimate election results. Prior to his time with The 65 Project, Michael served as an Assistant Attorney General for the state of Utah, General Counsel for the voting advocacy organization Represent Us, and taught the subjects of constitutional law, administrative law, statutory interpretation, and election law at various institutions of higher learning. Today he's coming to us from the Beehive State in Salt Lake City, Utah. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks, Reed. It's great to be here. So I want to get into the work that you're doing with the 65 Project. And just for the listeners who may not know, the name comes from Donald Trump's 65 failed lawsuits aimed at overturning the 2020 presidential election. So talk to us a little bit about how the organization came to be, who's involved, what you guys are trying to achieve, and how you feel like you've been doing so far. The organization is the brainchild of Melissa Moss, who uh, has been involved in democratic politics, but also more recently had set up the organization called LawWorks, which was designed in 2017 to support the Mueller investigation. And so after she experienced what the rest of us did following the 2020 election, she was wondering why all the lawyers who had brought these fraudulent claims to court were still practicing. And so she started to put together the ideas of the organization. And she went to one of her friends, who's David Brock, who runs Media Matters, founded American Bridge Pack. Another former Republican. That's right. And they were both interested. So they started to put together the contours of it. And in late last year, about December, they hired me to be the managing director. And as you said, the name comes from the 65 bogus lawsuits that the Trump campaign and allies filed across the country to try to overturn the election results. So this particular mission and issue has a, a special resonance for us here at the Lincoln Project. And Michael, you and I talked about this when we met last week, I think, which was November 7th, the media calls the election for Joe Biden. November 8th, Donald Trump and his legitimate law firms start to go into overdrive at his insistence and with the support of a lot of people in various states to start filing lawsuits, especially in a state like Pennsylvania, with at best specious claims to election irregularities. And we went out of our way to say these are the kind of law firms that are reputable. They are legitimate corporate law firms, litigation firms. They should know better. We went out of our way to make sure everybody knew who they were. 
And by the end of that next week after the election, I think it was like Friday the 13th, the biggest and best of those firms had run for the hills. They said, we're not going to get involved in that. Later on, I believe in November or December, after it came out that Cleta Mitchell, who I believe belonged to maybe Jones Day at that point, had been on the phone with then-President Trump trying to pressure Brad Raffensperger in a perfect phone call, Michael. We made sure everybody knew who she was, and she subsequently had to leave her firm, too. The vacuum being filled by the Kraken lady, Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, you know, Jeffrey Clark. And so that was probably more of the hand-to-hand combat and guerrilla tactics, which I really do believe markedly affected how he had to go about that. But tell us a little bit more about these 65 lawsuits that the Trump people tried to file and ultimately failed at. Right. Well, they were filed across the country in all seven states. Some were filed by the Trump campaign, other by very close allies masquerading themselves as champions of the voter whose rights were being infringed by the fact that other people got to vote. And so you saw these across the country uniformly rejected, often by Republican appointed judges, often by Trump appointed judges. And they were spacious, as you said, they were fraudulent, they were bogus. And, you know, the great example that you've talked about in Pennsylvania, it's funny, if you look at the docket for one of the major cases there against the four Democratic counties, they filed it on, I want to say, November 9th, 8th or 9th, and and involved three attorneys, two of whom were at one of the most prestigious firms that's based in Pennsylvania. And three days later, those attorneys withdrew because of the effort of Lincoln Project to make sure that there was that public pressure on those organizations and those firms. And so they were left, the Trump campaign, with attorneys who had no idea what they were doing. And they didn't have claims to begin with, but it certainly helped the process for the courts to see that the kind of claims that were being raised were illegitimate and that no one wanted to be touching them at the reputable firms. That was the other part, too, as you and I were discussing, is because we got some pushback from, you know, both Republican and Democratic lawyers, not surprisingly. I know that the legal profession is very protective of itself, right? That you guys are officers of the court. You have to take lots of tests and go to school and all these other things, right? And I said, like, look, these people aren't like they're not John Adams, right? They're not defending a client who is beyond reproach or has been falsely accused of something, right? These are people who know better. They know this is all horse shit. And they're doing it anyway, because their client is telling them to. And so I guess my question for you is both as an attorney and as an organization, how do you deal with that when, again, you are an officer of the court, you're supposed to be steeped in the law. If you're an election lawyer, certainly an election law, if you're a constitutional attorney in the the vagaries of the constitution, of which there are a lot, how does someone, you know, again, from a reputable firm, these are not Jenna Ellis type people, right? These are people who have gone through a lot of training. How do they come to a decision to do that? I think that they get emboldened by hearing a lot of different voices telling them they should do it. I think they want to fall into the mix of people who are looking for a rise in their careers or an opportunity that, you know, even if they don't succeed, at least they're seen as the champions for the causes that will then elevate them later in their careers. We've been looking at the kind of lawyers who were continued in these cases. And a lot of them really are those small firms or solo practitioners who had a hand in Republican politics at a local level. And I think that they saw this as an opportunity to advance themselves. If, for example, someone like Jenna Ellis can go from her career trajectory to end up advising the president of the United States, anybody could do it. So you might as well sign on. I don't know that her career track had necessarily a quote unquote trajectory, right? Until it came into contact with Donald Trump. And but for that, Michael, she probably would still be defending parking tickets or something in Colorado. It was a trampoline trajectory. She just bounced in the right spot and landed up high. Right. And again, I think the thing about a person like Donald Trump 
in a White House like he created is that anyone who's willing to do what he asks will ultimately get a shot if they can get their foot in the door. But before we talk a little bit more about what you're saying, give me a little bit of a sense, if you can, of when there's a big firm like a Jones Day and they've got attorneys actively working on this stuff. They've got offices, I believe, probably in multiple places, right? They've got different practices. They, a lot of them are probably corporate attorneys who they work on contracts, they work on regulatory issues, whatever it is, mergers and acquisitions. And so now they're like, you're doing what? So like, what's the dynamic inside a firm like that? It depends on the firm. Obviously, a lot of them are ingrained in various politics. And so some of them, like Jones Day, for example, they'll be committed to the mainstream Republican efforts. They were ready to represent the Trump campaign. If there were valid claims to make post-election claims, there are election contests that there are rules you know, and, and statutes that prescribe how you can test an election and you're going to follow those. And I think that a lot of the lawyers in those offices assumed that the representation would follow those kind of lines. Oh, the request is, you know, to make sure that these absentee ballots are counted or that the late arriving votes from overseas veterans or overseas military are being counted. So that's the kind of election contest that's viewed by us and by others as legitimate. And maybe that's how they were expecting to represent the Trump campaign. And then they started reading the complaints and they're wildly bogus. They're fraudulent on their face. They make up facts, they make up law, and they're just basically a form of political propaganda. And at that point, the lawyers in the firm who have accepted the concept that as a large organization, we will represent people who sometimes we don't like politically or don't like morally, we're not going to accept that we're going to try to overturn American democracy through this firm. We're not going to engage in that effort. And it was really, I don't think it was exclusively a financial question. I think in many respects, the partnership and the lawyers inside revolted and said, no, we're not going to be a part of that. Now let's go through the process. So we have that first week where the white shoe firms wash out, not surprisingly. Now you bring in Sidney Powell, Lynn Wood, Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, this cast of characters that, and let me just say as an aside, like Rudy Giuliani was a United States attorney, I believe, right? He was a prosecutor. Like I believe at one point, even maybe during the Reagan administration, he was an assistant attorney general. So like this was a guy who before his complete and utter meltdown was at least, I mean, a grandstanding to be sure, but a solid attorney prior to his time as mayor. And so now he's hanging out with all these people, right? His hair dye is melting. He's over at the Four Seasons thing. So take us through how you guys from the Project 65 perspective see what happened in those intervening weeks between the end of the election and January 6th, and now how you project that into the work you're doing today. I think if you start reading the complaints, what you see is that they were willing as lawyers to put into a complaint anything that they heard from anybody anywhere without regard to whether or not they were factual, whether or not they investigated to make sure that the things that they were saying were confirmed, that there were trucks driving around the city that were emptying ballots across Philadelphia, that people were hiding ballots stuffed under the table as they were counting them. They would take anything and generate a line in the complaint that asserted that to be true. And so that's how they were cobbling together their claims of fraud. And then they began to amplify them. They started talking about it outside of landscaping companies or at rallies or before state legislatures. And you started to see that they realized that they were going to be losing in the court, but they weren't concerned about losing in the court because quite frankly, I don't think they ever thought that they were going to win in the court. They were using these complaints and these legal filings as a way to be able to say to legislatures and the public and the media, look, 
courts are looking at this. Look, we have these claims of fraud. Look at all these facts. We're confident the court's going to overturn it. And when they didn't, then they started to say, okay, well, now we're going to go to the legislatures. Now we're going to go start trying to have false electors in place. Now we're going to turn to January 6th and we're going to have people come to the Capitol and we're going to send them to the Capitol building to overturn the election. You see the desperation in these documents as they start to realize that they are not going to win in any one of these avenues that they're trying. But because they were never thinking that they would succeed in the courtroom, that's where the 65 Project comes in. Because as a lawyer, if I file 10 cases and I lose all 10 cases, I'm not going to file that case again. I'm not going to keep doing it. That's the deterrent effect. Wasting my time, wasting my reputation, wasting my money. But they weren't expecting to win. They got out of the lawsuits what they wanted in the short term, which was to be able to use them in the court of public opinion and with state legislatures. So we have to create another deterrent effect. We have to create a system of accountability for the lawyers who participate in that so that their livelihoods are on the line for having participated in that effort. So that's why we step into it because we can't let it go. And it's not about past behavior exclusively and punishing it. It's about creating that deterrent effect for the future because it's part of their game now. Talk to me about the deterrent effect. As I noted lightheartedly, you know, the legal profession takes itself very seriously. It wants to protect itself as not only a profession, but as an industry. Let's be clear, because it is an industry. So what is the process by which you actually hold an attorney accountable? And do you see that you're getting any pushback in these efforts, even from people who should know better? Yeah, so in every state, it's different, but it's similar enough to be able to speak generally about it. Every lawyer takes an oath when they become a lawyer and become licensed, and they agree to follow the rules of professional conduct in the state where they're licensed. And the rules lay out different obligations and responsibilities, truth, truthfulness to the court, speaking truthfully to third parties, not making fraudulent claims or baseless claims, making sure that you've done your due diligence as you file meritorious claims, which is not to say that you can't file things that are trying to advance the law or that you have to know all the facts, but you have to do your due diligence and make sure that you're not misrepresenting things to the court. And when you violate those rules, there's an opportunity to file a grievance against that lawyer. And across the states, it's generally the same. A lawyer will receive a letter about their conduct. The 65 Project has filed them you know, in various states already. We write the letter, we explain the conduct, we highlight the rules that we think have been violated. And then the grievance committee or the Office of Disciplinary Counsel will investigate and then decide whether or not to move forward with it. And then how it moves forward really does vary state to state. Sometimes it's a tribunal within the bar. Sometimes it proceeds in district court or state court. And then there's an opportunity for the other side, the lawyer, to explain their conduct, defend themselves. And then if they are found to have violated the rules, to receive the punishment, the discipline that they deserve. So that's the process we've seen. And to get to the second part of the question, we have seen pushback. The rules have not been used by lawyers in the past to ensure that when attorneys violate them, that they are going to be held accountable. And you know, even Watergate, there's a great study by a law professor, I think her name is Catherine Clark at WashU, and she found that after Watergate, of the 42 lawyers who were involved in Watergate, only 28 of them were disciplined by the bars. If only 28 out of 42 lawyers are going to be disciplined for Watergate, there's room for improvement there. And so there has been pushback, but we've seen a lot of reception to the idea as well, that these rules exist. When lawyers break them, there's need for discipline. And as a profession, as you said, we care about our profession's integrity. And the best way to ensure that integrity is to discipline those who are violating those rules. So Michael, I mean, you guys are, as I mentioned, officers of the court. You have this professional responsibility, 28 of 42 attorneys 
are disciplined. So, you know, you can be what censured, you can be suspended, you can be disbarred. I assume that the legal profession and the legal community probably doesn't want to hand out the red card or the death penalty, you know, if you go back to SMU football, to many attorneys if it can avoid it, right? That's right. I mean, more often than not, they'll, they'll issue a reprimand. Depends on what the lawyer has done and how often they've repeated the conduct, but they will be between a reprimand, suspension, probation as an option as well, and then disbarment. But do any of those things other than disbarment or maybe a suspension have any practical effect on the ability to practice law? No, they don't. They don't have practical effect. They have the consequence that the discipline is available to the public to see and that it might increase significantly your professional liability insurance costs. And you might lose your practice with your firm if you're working at a firm. Right. So take us forward to where we are now. So tell us a little bit about the work, who all's involved, and what you guys have seen so far. So we launched in March, and to date we have filed, I think we're at 22 bar complaints. We're about to file a couple more. We started with focusing on January 6th and the advisors who orchestrated both the January 6th rally and the consequences of it, as well as the false elector scheme. And so we filed complaints against Jenna Ellis and Boris Epstein, against Cleta Mitchell, who you've mentioned. And then we also filed against false electors who were attorneys. So there were three false electors across the country who also were attorneys. And then we filed against insurrectionists, lawyers who participated in the insurrection, which is not to say lawyers who just attended the rally, but who made their way into the Capitol, and then who also filed pretty egregious and bogus claims after the fact to try to have the entire Congress overturned as unconstitutional. So we started there. And then we've been advancing our cause incrementally. We've filed against Ted Cruz the following month. And Ted Cruz is a special case. One, we wanted to prove that we're bipartisan and nobody hates Ted Cruz more than Republicans and Democrats. So together, it was a nice bipartisan effort. As my co-founder Rick Wilson likes to say, there are two kinds of people, Ted Cruz and people who hate Ted Cruz. My favorite is from Al Franken when he was in the Senate, who said, the thing you need to know about Ted Cruz is that I like Ted Cruz a lot more than most of my colleagues. And I hate Ted Cruz. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we fought against Ted Cruz. He was a special case because not only is he a public official who, who lied, like many of them did, about fraudulent claims of voter irregularities, but he also held himself out as an attorney for Donald Trump and Pennsylvania Republicans. He agreed to represent them when they were going to be before the United States Supreme Court. He said he would conduct the oral argument. He was asked to and he agreed to. So he took on a role as an attorney. And he used his law license to back himself up in that way. And because of that, he implicated some of the rules that otherwise wouldn't have been implicated when you have a client that you're lying for. And so we fought against Ted Cruz. We're going methodically through each state where the litigation occurred. And we are reviewing all of the litigation in those states and all the documents. And so we filed nine complaints in Pennsylvania just last month. And then we were also, you alluded to it already, the January 6th committee has been providing a lot of information that we wouldn't have otherwise had access to. And we're learning on a weekly basis, new lawyers who participated in the scheme, whether they were behind the scenes or whether or not they were a little bit more in front, but their emails are now coming out. So we have also filed against Ken Klukowski, who was an attorney who was working with Jeffrey Clark at the DOJ, and then another lawyer named Ken Cheeseborough, who was the originator of the false elector scheme, and then who also participated in some Wisconsin-based litigation. And so as more names come out from the January 6th committee, we're moving forward with those, but we're also then going state by state to file the bar complaints against the lawyers who participated in the litigation. Let's take an example like a John Eastman, California guy, having lived in California as long as I did, 
there was sort of like this aura around this weird little man of like, he's the constitutional expert, Dr. Eastman, Dr. Eastman. And it turns out he's a crank, or at least he was besotted by the idea of being in the Oval Office with the president, you know, wrote this infamous memo, then told people, oh, I, you know, I never thought anybody was going to take it seriously. Then he was caught on tape by our friend of the show, Lauren Windsor, saying, oh, no, 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 it really is true. And we're going to hold all these people accountable. And then he has been out to state legislatures. You know, I don't know the last time he went, but pretty recently, I think even as early as this year, demanding that they overturn the election of 2020, which no one's going to do. Even Robin DeVos, the speaker of the House up there, said, like, when Donald Trump calls him, he said, I'm not going to do that. And he's also threatening them. Now, he has had his phone seized by federal authorities. He has, I believe, testified before January 6th committee, which is mostly uh, the Fifth Amendment, which I, Michael, I find, as I've said previously, the height of irony that this is a system you tried to overturn and now you're hiding behind it. Like, how do you go after somebody like him? A bar complaint has been filed against him. It was filed by another organization way back in early part of 2021, I believe. And the California bar has announced that they are moving forward with the investigation. It's slow though. And because it's so slow, we decided more recently to take more dramatic action. So we actually asked the United States Supreme Court to remove him from the membership in the United States Supreme Court bar, which is a prestigious setting. I mean, a lawyer strives to be in that and it's a valuable kind of tool and affirmation to be a part of that bar. And so we've asked for the bar, United States Supreme Court, to remove him. But he's going to face criminal consequences, I think, really, quite frankly. He's already been found by a judge in California to more likely than not have engaged in criminal conspiracy. He seems to be uh, on the verge of some kind of indictment from the Department of Justice. So that's a special case because he really will face a form of accountability that we could only hope for for some other lawyers who participated in it. And what about the likes of the Lynn Woods and the Kraken lady, right? I mean, because they were out there and I think the Dominion Voting Systems people sued her for like $2 billion or something. And Michael, this is where I, I'm interested because you, you said that a lot of these people knew these legal claims or legal filings were bogus, but they were a means to an end. She even said, you couldn't have possibly expected me to be taken seriously by this, which seems to be a ridiculous, ludicrous defense when you, know, you see her on tape, you see her on camera saying these crazy things. So what about those folks? I think they're going to end up without a law license at the end of this. So Lynn Wood, the Georgia Bar, is moving forward very quickly against him. Sidney Powell, the state of Texas Bar Association, is moving forward against her. So there'll be a trial, assuming she doesn't just concede her law license. Same with even Ken Paxton and as the attorney general in Texas, as the state bar is moving forward against him. I think those folks will end up having their licenses suspended or disbarred. Rudy Giuliani has already had his license suspended by New York and D.C., we want to focus also on the lawyers who were called by Linwood, called by Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, you know, the ones who picked up the phone when Rudy Giuliani or Sidney Powell called and said, hey, we want to file this in Arizona. We want to file this in New Mexico and Wisconsin and Michigan. Can you help us? And we want to demonstrate to them that there are consequences for accepting that phone call. And the reason we need to do that is because we're never going to dissuade the people who are more acting like political operatives. Rudy Giuliani is more of a political operative than he is a lawyer at this point. Same with Sidney Powell. And quite frankly, same with Cleta Mitchell. We're never going to dissuade them because they're making their money off of being political operatives. But there are lawyers, for example, in Michigan who agree to take that phone call and who did some research, signed a pleading, and the judge in some of those cases found them to have been sanctionable conduct, which means she imposed $180,000 in legal fees 
to pay back the city of Detroit and the state of Michigan for having to defend these fraudulent claims. And it's joint and several liability, which means all of them are on the hook for the full amount. And if one person doesn't pay, the other person has to pay. And so this lawyer who did an hour working on the case is now on the hook for $180,000 in legal fees. And so that's what we have to demonstrate, or you're going to lose your law license. All of them have been referred to the state bars for discipline. And so when we in Pennsylvania, for example, file against someone like Linda Kearns, who took this case trying to elevate her career, and she faces consequences for it, in addition to dissuading her from ever taking the call, that news becomes public in Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania legal community knows it. And the next time that someone from the Trump campaign in 2024 calls, they're going to think, what happened to Linda Kearns? No, I'm not losing my law license over this. So that's part of the effort too. There's resistance from state bars. Have you all faced any blowback from your efforts so far? Not from state bars. In fact, we've been impressed with how quickly some of the bars have moved. Georgia is a great example of this. We filed against two false electors there, Bill Carver and a guy named Daryl Moody, who acted both as false electors and who signed documents that then were sent to Congress and sent to a district court, which implicates other issues. And at one point, apparently Bill Carver had said, oh, somebody already filed a bar complaint against me, so you should just dismiss this one. And the state bar didn't. The state bar moved forward, asked for a written statement from them, asked for us to reply. We got an opportunity to do that. And then we recently found out that they're moving forward with it. So they have decided to further the case and send it on to the state disciplinary board where Bill Carver has to testify under oath about his conduct before the state bar. And so bars are moving forward with it. New York has moved forward with Rudy Giuliani very swiftly, and Texas has moved forward with complaints against lawyers there. So we haven't seen a lot of resistance from state bars. We've seen some resistance from ethics lawyers, ethics professors who worry about us weaponizing the state disciplinary bar system against lawyers. I don't think that it's weaponizing it. I think it's just using it the way it exists, but that's the blowback. But I mean, I guess that would be my question is, what good is a disciplinary system if you're unwilling to use it, one? And two, if this isn't grounds for discipline, whatever could be. I mean, look, there's theft of a client, there's violating, you know, privilege, all of the stuff that sort of comes from a normal attorney-client privilege or the normal sanctionable offenses in front of a court or whatever. But this is a whole different ballgame. And that's one of the things, Michael, that broadly concerns me is that when you talk about these ethics professors, I'm sure their concerns are well-founded and well-grounded, but it also speaks to this desire to maintain a status quo which no longer exists. Because what we know about this is that there will always be more who will file the case. That's exactly right. And so I always likened it to, it's not weaponizing the criminal justice system to enforce criminal laws. And so it's the same system. This is a system that lawyers have agreed to. This is a system we've been bound by for my entire time as an attorney, but hundreds of years at this point. If it hasn't been used appropriately in the past, it shouldn't prevent us from using it appropriately in the future. And I hear a lot about the risks of weaponizing it. What concerns me more is the risk of not using the bar system in this case. To say that we're too concerned about it being abused, the disciplinary process from being abused for political reasons, to enforce it now and to use it now just means that it's wasted. We don't need those rules because we're not going to abide by them. We're not going to enforce them when our democracy is at stake. And that's ludicrous to me. This is the same kind of thing when you hear, well, there's concern that you know DOJ shouldn't indict someone like a Donald Trump because what kind of precedent does that set? And what I say is, what kind of precedent does it set if you don't? I mean, Nixon got out of it because Ford pardoned him. 
right? That sort of tied it off. But here is a different thing. And you also see that I know that you spoke about Georgia, you know, the Fulton County District Attorney is looking at a lot of these people. I also get the sense, Michael, that the state of Georgia is like, I know we're next to Florida. We're not Florida. Like, we don't want to be thought of as Florida, <laughs> right? Like, they really want to get like their reputation as a normal state back. I think that's right. And that's uniform across it. I mean, you see actors of, across the political spectrum saying, we have rules, we have laws, we have responsibilities and obligations. We're going to fulfill those. And we are not Florida. Let me ask you this. Let me put your specific lawyer hat on. Give me and the listeners, if you can, a definition of a criminal conspiracy. A criminal conspiracy is a knowing attempt to violate the law with other people. So John Eastman and Donald Trump, at least those two and probably more, knew the laws, knew what they were proposing, violated the laws, and nevertheless worked with the other to violate those laws. That's the basis of it. So is intent even relevant? Or is intent implied? The intent is to work with the other. And so as long as there's a knowingness to work with the other to violate a law, then that can be criminal conspiracy. And then there are different levels of it, right? There's first degree, second degree, third degree, just the way there are with other criminal acts. So the court in California said that at least one way in which it was a criminal conspiracy was attempting to obstruct a governmental proceeding, which they knew that Congress convening was a governmental proceeding. They knew that they were trying to obstruct it and they worked together to do so. And so where do you guys go from here? Because the January 6th committee is obviously unearthing a lot of information, a lot of new names. Just news the other day before we were taping that Pat Cipollone had been subpoenaed by a federal grand jury, I believe, to speak. Obviously, he's got some executive privilege things that he'll contend with. But do you expect that this work will turn up more people and more attorneys in the states, especially as we get to this false electors stuff and this stuff really starts to come to the fore, I know the January 6th committee hearing covered it, but I feel like it sort of went by the wayside. But this was, of course, an, an attempt also to not only obstruct an official proceeding, but to supersede an actual and legal electoral vote in these states. We'll continue to see more and more names come forward. I think that especially when we get the report, as much information has been unveiled by the January 6th committee. It's a fragment of what they have. And so when they actually issue their report, we will see names that we had not heard of even in the committee's hearings, and we'll be able to move forward with those. We're going to continue litigating or bringing complaints against the lawyers who litigated across the states, and we'll continue to monitor the January 6th committee work. And then our work is to also make sure that the public is aware of the outcomes of this. We can't pressure the state bars to act quickly or to act in a certain way. But we feel validated by what we've seen so far, and we're going to publicize that because part of the responsibility we feel is to make sure that the lawyers who participate in this feel shamed and also that their shame is known to the rest of the legal community. And as icky as that might sound to lawyers who don't really want to shame their colleagues and want to make sure that the legal profession is held up to a higher standard so you don't tell people about the ill works of others. It's an important part of this to make sure that there's that full deterrent effect is to make sure that people know that there are consequences. Well, yeah. And again, as we said, with when we were talking about the ethics lawyers, like, yeah, you may not want the spotlight on you or your colleagues, your profession, because it's uncomfortable. But the truth is, is that they are officers of the court. When you take on a client, you take them on good, bad and otherwise. If you act in a way that is inconsistent with your ethics, morality, state law, federal law, whatever it is, like those are things to be held accountable for. And I think that that's one that's sometimes hard as well. Uh, oh, well, well, you know, we can't do that because 
this might happen. As I always say, the listeners, Michael, have heard this far too many. Whenever it is you try and avoid the worst thing, the worst thing will find you. It will always find you. Oh, I don't want to do that because this other bad thing might happen. Congratulations. Welcome to the other bad thing. That's exactly right. Well, I think one of the best responses we've had is actually from an ethics lawyer who um, is well-regarded. I think he teaches at Fordham and he was asked by CNN, well, isn't this really you know, extraordinary what the 65 Project is trying to do and extraordinary in a bad way? Isn't this kind of going beyond what the disciplinary system is intended for? And he said, well, it is extraordinary. But on the other hand, the conduct they're responding to is pretty extraordinary too. So maybe it makes sense. And that was the right perspective. Right. And look, we live in extraordinary times as much as we'd all love to be as one of the guys that used to work on our team said, I wish I wasn't living through history. But here we are. Well, Michael, where can folks find more information about the 65 Project's work? We're at the 65 projectcom You'll see all of our complaints. You'll have opportunities to volunteer, to donate, to engage with our effort. And can we find you anywhere on social media? Yes, I have a Twitter at mjteeter47. All right, at mjteeter47. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. You can find me on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Michael Teeter, thanks for joining me. And everybody else, we'll see you soon. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.